This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, I'm Flo as you can hear, so Indy is not doing this episode of the podcast and you will soon find out why. Um, my guest today is Michael Nyberg and he is a military historian. Um, he is working since the 90s already in military history and we're going to talk a bit about um, military history in general and a very specific book that we um, in the post-production crew of The Great War are big fans of later on. So, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hello, everybody. My name is Michael Nyberg. I'm an historian. Um, I teach at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, and I am primarily interested in First World War and in global connections of the First World War. When you say you study at the military college, I assume that's, that was not always on your mind. So how did, how did you came to you know, be someone exclusively focused on military history? So I think for me it was... Um, the Real Revelation was a course that I took as an undergraduate that looked at military history from a social history and cultural history perspective. And that was kind of uh, eye-opening to me, that, that you could study wars um, not as a kind of tactical or technological phenomenon, but as something that is an actor in the general patterns of history. So to me, what I've always been interested in is, is the ways that um, military things and wars interact with larger patterns of history, social history, political history, uh, cultural history. Uh, and that course was really an eye-opening thing to me that I could do it. Uh, working for the military has been almost an accident. Um, my two jobs working for uh, military, professional military education uh, have been, have begun as visiting professorships. That is, I came for one year, first to the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado and now here in Pennsylvania, and they've just turned into longer-term jobs. And where I am now, uh, the focus is on strategy. It is on uh, most of our students are lieutenant colonels and colonels. And the idea is to help them understand how war in the military connects to those larger patterns. So the work that I do is, is right on point for what they study here. Okay, that's uh, pretty interesting because um, from the general perception that we sometimes get on our channel, from you know people who just get into the show or people who generally you know are not that much into history military history is sometimes considered like a, an, an odd side discipline and and that it's as you said something that is you know more about tactics and uh, tank numbers and that sort of thing um, so was it a pretty radical um, thought when you learned about and approach this um, part of history in a more co uh, cohesive manner with like cultural and social stuff? Yeah, that's true. There weren't very many programs that were doing what I wanted to do. So I, my work kind of sat on an edge between military history and social history, even sociology. So my dissertation advisor was in fact a sociologist um, because there just weren't a lot of people thinking about the kinds of questions that I was thinking about. So to me, 
one of the reasons military history occasionally gets marginalized is if you study a topic that is so narrow, uh, an old battle or an old technology or an old general, if you do that, you run the risk of not being able to speak to fellow historians. You, you run the risk of kind of isolating yourself by discipline. So um, I wanted to be very careful not to do that. And when I was doing this in the mid-1990s, there just weren't a lot of people thinking along this way. So um, I kind of had to, with a few other people, I, I don't want to make it sound like I was alone or doing this you know, somehow by myself, but it was a relatively small community. Uh, it was then called the New Military History which was focused on issues of social class and focused on issues of race and gender uh, and social patterns. And then as I got involved in the First World War, I got involved in transnational history, which is looking at factors of history that kind of transcend just one nation. So World War I is, of course, a perfect case study of that um, as it touches every corner of the globe, whether whether that country was involved in the war or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and when you set out to change this perception in this, as you said, new military history. What were the reactions? I mean, I would especially think that you had some, you know, maybe encountered some resistance in terms of the military, but maybe also from the civilian side? There was more resistance from, I would say, professors who continue to look at military history as something that just didn't speak to wider patterns of history. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit sympathetic to that. Um, you know, a, a, a study that looks at I don't know, an obscure battle and spends 300 pages talking about an obscure battle. I think the author of a book like that has a responsibility to explain why his or her book is relevant to a wider audience. So I kind of get that. Um, on the military side, I think, you know, the dean, when I was first hired here, I thought put it really, really well. He, he said, you know, when you think of Clausewitz's trinity of the people, the army and the state, we have a lot of people who study the army. We have a lot of people who study the state. We actually don't have a lot of people who study the third end of that triangle, which is how the general public and how people respond to the military and to war. And so I thought that was really insightful of him. It was the best description. It was a better description of my work than I've ever come up with. So it was a way that I've always tried to frame what I do here, uh, both in the college and what I do in publishing. It's an attempt to make sure that we keep the third end of that triangle in the balance. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds about right. And as you already said, and you know, what's, that's something that we encounter every day working on our show as well, is that you know, looking at World War I, um, the cultural changes it brought even um, while the fighting was still going on are so, so huge. I mean, the, I mean, we record this at the centennial of the October Revolution. So, I mean, the ramifications of World War I are so still felt and you know it's not just about military tactics which of course also involved so was your new approach to military history something that automatically drew you to world war one or were you interested in this conflict before even i think it was two things one it was that world war one to me it just it touches everything so as you know it creates a revolution in russia it creates a near civil war and revolution in germany it creates the roots of modern anti-imperialism it does all of this And I was really interested, I think, when I first got started, how did a war that began from such a small cause produce such unbelievable effects just a couple of years later? So that was one problem intellectually that I was thinking about. The other, quite frankly, is that when I started teaching courses in World War I, I didn't like the materials that were available to give to students. I thought they were – I didn't think my students needed to know how to attack the Passchendaele Ridge. Like that, that they don't need to know. 
But the way that war transforms society, the way that war affects social patterns, the way that war impacts the relationships of minority and majority groups within a society, those were themes I wanted my students thinking about. Um, and I have to say, along the way, I mean, I did write a book on the Second Battle of the Marne. Um, so I, I did think that I had to think more about the operational and tactical side of the First World War to fully understand it, um, or to try to fully understand it, because it's such a complicated topic. But what I was looking for were books that could give them that, that wider span. Why does the First World War create the Russian Revolution? Why does it create modern Chinese nationalism? Why does it create you know, all, all of these things that are going on in that short time period? So it, it was two. It was one, the questions that were banging around in my own head, and then it was also the difficulty I had finding materials I could use to engage with undergraduate students. And uh, what were some of the um, you know, revelations for you when you started you know, working on, I think you wrote several books on the Great War alone right now. So what, what were th some of the things that you, um, that you found out that you know, might now, nowadays be considered very important? Well, I, I think, I don't know how radically new, but I think working with a group of international scholars, one thing we were able to do is realize that these patterns that sometimes countries think were distinct or unique to them are in fact widely shared. So it's a big theme in American history that, you know, African Americans volunteer and are drafted into the army with the expectation of increased civil rights at the end of the war. And this is a pattern you see from say the Quebecois in Canada or the Irish in the British empire or the Senegalese in the French empire, that this is a, that there's a widely shared sense around the world I think it's probably less true in Germany, though I'm sure there are examples there as well, um, where the war is expected to produce some sort of social equality, that if everybody is sacrificing equally, everybody should be rewarded equally. And when that doesn't happen at the end of the war, it creates these tremendous tensions. So one thing that was interesting to me is the way that these patterns that, that we used to think of as being national patterns are, in fact, global patterns. And the other thing that was interesting to me is the way that certain patterns um, you know, we think of armies as representing nations. Everybody wears uniforms that display their nation. But the way that identity is kind of undercut, that, that you know, you may think of yourself as German, but at the same time, you're thinking of yourself as Bavarian and Catholic and working class. And that some of these identities extend beyond national boundaries and how important that was in, in the way that people were thinking of how they wanted to recreate the post-war world when all of this was over. Did you ever get any um, kind of uh, feedback from, you know, outside uh, the military academia world for, for your work? Like, um, did you ever feel that your translation work, for example, was successful in, you know, um, approaching the con conflict differently and making it more accessible for people who might not be interested in the old perception of military history? Uh, I hope that that was true. I, I don't, I don't, um, you know, I think it's still true that the First World War is um, just such a complicated event in history that, that it, it's tough for historians to wrestle with. I think the main reason we don't wrestle with the war more often is that it is really, really complicated. It takes decades of study to figure it out. And just when you think you've got something kind of solved in your head, then a whole nother series of questions come up. So, um, I think that's one of the reasons. So, uh, you know, for the general public, I think the U.S. has been a little bit behind the curve. Um, when I go to Europe, when I go to Ireland, when I go to Canada, when I go to Australia and New Zealand, even the two trips I've made to the Middle East, um, the world, First World War is still a kind of living event in people's memories. Um, 
it's not in the U.S. quite so much, and it's not in Germany quite so much either. Uh, you know, where, where you are in Berlin, you know, the, the the signs of the Second World War are everywhere, and the signs of the Cold War are kind of everywhere. You you, you know, the way that Berlin has chosen to mark out where the wall was and you know keep that memory active. Um, so I think it, it varies by country. It varies by where you go. And I think there's also folks who are interested in military history for very localized reasons. So they want to know what happened in their county or their town or even more narrowly to their family. So I, I think the global approach has been something that has been um, a little harder to grasp. And it's been something that's required a, a real active community of scholars, which we're very fortunate to have. First World War Historians work together very, very closely across intellectual disciplines and across national boundaries, and that's been very much to the good. Scholars from Hong Kong, scholars from India, scholars from South Africa, um, scholars from Latin America, and that, that's been a really wonderful thing to be a part of. When we started working on this project, you know, as a side result, we, you know, memorized a lot of names, got uh, introduced to a lot of, you know, people which were extremely famous 100 years ago, and of course there are streets named after them. So, for example, um, I live uh, on the corner of uh, Holzendorf Street, which was a, a German admiral, and I had no idea about this. And I mean, usually in Germany, you know, you have like small markers under the street signs that say who the person was and everything, but he doesn't have a marker. Or um, next to the Uh, Tempelhof Airfield, which was built by the Nazis in the, in the 30s. There is like a now very attractive uh, kind of settlement that was um, built by, uh, while the airport, airport was built, and all the streets there are named after World War I flying aces. So, of course, people know Richthofen and the Red, the Red Baron, but there is like a Werner Voss Street, for example. And I actually don't think a lot of people realize that. It's also the same when you go to the villages outside of Berlin. Um, Every village has a World War I memorial. So the, the, I say the symbols and everything are still there. The big question is, do we recognize them and do we talk about them? And that's, of course, the interesting question with Germany. Right. My first trip to Berlin, I, kind of, I had been to Paris and London quite a bit, and there are World War I markers everywhere in Paris and London. Um, Germany, the first time I came to Berlin, Dahlem was the only place that, that I went to where I saw a First World War memorial. Inside Berlin itself, you have the, the museum island where there's obviously things intended for commemoration, but it's just not there in the way that the Second World War uh, or the Cold War is. And I, I was struck especially, this must have been 15 years ago, um, the omnipresence of the Berlin Wall and that, that kind of imagery in Berlin um, is much more present than the First World War is. And maybe maybe there are reasons, good reasons for that, but... Um, But yeah, this is also another question that historians have been looking at, how societies memorialize war and how they remember war and how they think about war. And every society, of course, does this in a different way. One of the reasons why we were excited, we as the, what I would say, the crew of the Great War, were excited to talk to you about, um, is one of your recent works, which is, I will read the official title, The Military Atlas of World War I. Um, and yes, you heard that right, it's an atlas. So... Um, it's basically a very big coffee table-sized book, and it has um, maps of all major offensives from, from a variety of fronts. And for us at the Great War, it has been our go-to source to you know, get a quick overview about um, bigger and smaller movements during the off offensives, military movements. And it's you know, what was an inspiration for us in terms of like style that we used to 
uh, illustrate our maps, our digital maps, which a lot of people are big fans of. So um, how did you come up with the idea to, to, to make an atlas about um, a historic subject? Might not be the most obvious idea. First, I was talking to the publishers who had done something on World War II, and um, I was talking to them that you know the, the military academy, the United States Military Academy at West Point, has beautiful digitized maps that are available. You can they're, they're public domain. You can use them. You can publish them. You can do whatever you want with them. The problem with those maps, though, is that there isn't very much context associated with them. So there isn't an explanation for what um, what those maps are representing. So the idea really was to take maps um, that were of as good a quality as the West Point maps um, and do two things with them. Remove some of the strictly army stuff. That is, some of the, the West Point maps have um, some of the West Point maps have uh, too much uh, technical detail. That is, they sometimes go down to, to very detailed army kind of things. We wanted to take some of that out uh, to provide a wider context. And then we really wanted to put a little bit of historical context in it to explain why these things are happening and why they're happening when they're happening. And so while the West Point maps I was thinking of as being really much more for specialists, we wanted these maps to be people who were interested in the First World War but might not exactly care where the 28th Division was on a certain day. So th th that was the inspiration. Um, we had a lot of going back and forth about what kind of maps we wanted to use. I was particularly happy. I think the maps I've used the most in class have been the air war maps, Because West Point, it's, those, those are ground maps. So the strategic bombing campaigns of the First World War, those are the first real maps I think I'd ever seen to kind of articulate where, what, what, what the, the belligerents were trying to do with the strategic bombing campaign. Um, that's what we were really trying to do. And, of course, to keep it as global as possible. So, again, we're looking at Mesopotamia. We're looking at, you know theaters of the war that maybe sometimes people don't always consider. And uh, how um, difficult was it to decide what kind, of level, what kind of level of detail you want to show and what to leave out? I mean, is it, was it a, a tough compromise sometimes? It was on a, uh, at times. I mean, maps are um, really, I guess, you know, maps are just another textual representation of, of, a, of an argument that you're trying to make. And so... One of the things working on this project, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in statistics and maps and, and the way that, you know, you have to use them very, very selectively. There's, you simply, you know, you, if you think about what a map is going to look like on a page, you have a limited amount of space on which you can put information. What information do you want to privilege? Um, and so we did this with almost every map. So some maps, it's rivers that you want to privilege. Some maps, it might be front lines. Um, And then figuring out what level of military detail you really figure that you want to use. And the guiding assumption I had is that this was going to be a book for people who didn't know the difference between the British 16th and British 51st Division. That that, that level of detail probably wasn't going to matter. Um, what what people wanted was a more of a bird's eye kind of view. And that's that's kind of the guiding principle we had for it. I figured if somebody wanted really intensive detail, the West Point maps are the logical starting point. And then there are other maps that will get into even greater detail. So um, it, it was my first time really wrestling with those questions and using maps to build an argument. Um, there's actually a book out there that someone gave me while I was working on this called How to Lie with Maps. Um, there's, a, there's another one called How to Lie with Statistics. Um, you know, just making the point that what you, what you include and what you choose to exclude will impact the way the reader interacts. And so 
I was trying to be as cognizant of that as I could. Yeah, I mean, when we started um, diving into the whole topic, which, I mean, when we started the project, it was something that we completely underestimated how much of a challenge it can be. Um, I mean, now we got the help of someone from the digital cartography community, which is very awesome that this exists, and someone is actually, you know, doing high-quality also top topographical maps for us. I mean, there's people out there who can, you know, spot, for example, the a mistake in, in, in a border drawing or say that, hey, this town is, you know, a few, if 50 kilometers too far to the east. But for a lot of people, a map is just something that they quickly glance at and they would take what you did for face value, which is a huge responsibility, something that we underestimated, admittedly, when we started this show. Yeah, absolutely. Maps are just... Um They're, they're only as good as the information that you're able to put in them. So we there were a few mistakes that, that we found in the cartography, natural mistakes that people had made. And then there were other kind of real issues of, of interpretation. Do, do we include this or do we not include this? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting challenge to me. And I, I've, I've worked with maps in, in inserts in my books before, but I had never done you know that many where every one of them has to be has to be thought through. Um, and it was kind of shocking to me that nobody had really done this before. Nobody had really gone through. Uh, and then as I was doing it, I was realizing the challenge. I thought, okay, maybe there's a pretty good reason why nobody's done this. Um, but I'm glad we did it. It was a, a worthwhile project, I think. And uh, was it more challenging, actually? Um, some, something that we also realized when we do our research is that um, the more obscure the front gets you want to talk about, the less precise the map material gets. I mean, for when we talk about... The Western Front, you can have maps for certain battles and, as you said, find out where the 51st Division was on ex the, that exact day. But sometimes when we look for maps for certain battles, um, for example, at the Salonika Front, uh, we don't even find anything. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge problem. And then how do you take a space like Salonika that you want to represent on a map? Um, the other challenge, of course, is something like Gallipoli which is a long campaign that changes over time, or say Brest, or uh, sorry, uh, um, Gorlis Tarnow in the east, how do you take a static representation, a two-dimensional representation, and display change, which is actually a harder challenge than I was expecting. For me, the difficult part is they would give me uh, a complicated subject and say, okay, you have 150 words, go. And then, you know, it's the same challenge, but of course with prose. Uh, what do I want to include and what do I want to exclude? Uh, from from the discussion, so every step of this project was, um, uh, you know, a challenge of what to say and what I just had to make a decision. I just can't say. Um, I just have to leave it out, and you know that that can be a little frustrating. There's so much more you want to talk about. Um, so uh, you know, it, it's a case of a map too. You don't want the map to be so jammed with data that nobody can use it. Um, I think we've all looked at PowerPoint presentations where someone's just put so much information on a slide that it's it's unusable. And a map can get that way too if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in another topic um, I wanted to talk about, I saw that you, you know, now during the centennial, you wrote a few articles about how the war actually, or what impact it had on the American society. Um, and... I mean, our listeners can't really see that. But I see. I saw a very uh, nice propaganda poster behind you in your in your living room, actually. And um, did the um, how did the war actually what what influence did it have on the Americans um, by this time in 1917, for example? 
So I, this is an incredibly complicated uh, topic about which I don't think we as a community of historians have really done anything. So all of my teaching, all of my learning up to that, uh, up until, you know, I became a professor, I suppose, was top-down history. That is, it was all focused on Woodrow Wilson. Um, I'm, as we talked about earlier, I'm part of this kind of social history movement that attempts to look at things bottom up. So, you know, I did a book on this. I looked, I looked at how American communities responded to the war. And you, you can see, I think, a, a general pattern, though there are exceptions to it. Uh, before the sinking of the Lusitania, of most Americans thinking that this was Europe's war, it really wasn't going to affect us, that America's role ought to be to help the suffering and to help the democracies, mostly Britain and France. Um, after the Lusitania, this giant debate opens up in the United States about what America ought to do. There are people who continue to argue that the United States should just stay out of it entirely. There are other Americans who believe that the United States should break diplomatic relations with Germany, uh, play a more forceful role. And then there's a majority group, I would say, that it argues that the United States um, should try to stay out of the war. But at the same time, the best way to do that is to build a very big army and navy, not necessarily to use it to fight in Europe, but to use it to protect America's interests. And then I think there's, you know, the, the, there's uh, uh, three events that happened in the spring of 1917 that, that together pulled the United States into the war. One is Germany's uh, announcement that it would resume unrestricted submarine warfare, which everybody in America understands is a tremendous risk to American interests. It was a callback to the Lusitania, of course. Exactly. It means that more Lusitanias are going to come. Um, and it means that the United States is going to have to decide what it wants to do about what happens when more Americans die on passenger ships. Uh, and one response from the U.S. Congress is to allow those ships and merchant ships to arm themselves, which is a violation of international law that Germany has already said, if you do that, we're going to understand that we're at war with you. So that's one risk. The second is the first Russian revolution, which deposes the czar and puts Alexander Kerensky's provisional government in, which many Americans read as kind of evidence that this war is getting rid of the autocracies, that you can now defend the allies a little bit more because you can now support the British and the French without having to have the distasteful czar on your side. Um, now, if you think forward to World War II, that's another model where the United States fights with Stalin by their side the whole way. But of course, nobody knew that in 1917. And the third issue is, of course, the Zimmerman telegram, which a lot of Americans read as a virtual German declaration of war. So what, what I argue in the book, what, what I think happens is that in the spring of 1917, Americans conclude that by being neutral, they have, in fact, made themselves less safe, not more. So I don't think the Americans enter World War I enthusiastically. I think they enter the war believing that everything they've done to that point has made them less safe, not more safe. So that's about as quickly as I think I can sum up some of the arguments in the book. But, uh, you know, I, I think America does go through this roller coaster ride from 1914, where Americans think the war really isn't about us, to 1917, when I think February or so of 1917, when I think the vast majority of Americans um, realize it is about us. We, we do have to be involved. Uh, but America's goals in the war might not be the same as Britain and France. America, the United States, is a very big country. Uh, it also was a very big country 100 years ago with vast rural areas, for example. And I mean, I can see that um, someone maybe from, you know, New York who works in, you know, the finance, finances or something can follow this kind of international debate. But was this something that was also happening in parts of rural America already? Or was that a more disconnected part? 
Yeah, it's really easy to do this, actually. Um, I went to, um, I'll just give one example. I was in Des Moines, Iowa, which is in a very rural Midwestern part of the United States. And their state library has old newspapers from small towns in Iowa. And all you have to do is flip through the pages. The First World War is front page news all the time. So it's not the case that that it's only New York City where people are worried about this. Uh, it is absolutely the case. People in places like Des Moines, Iowa, um, um, Tallahassee, Florida, uh, are actively, passionately interested in what's happening overseas. So, um, you know, this is, I think, one of the reasons why the Zimmerman telegram is so important. It is, it is to many Americans the first moment when the war seems to directly threaten the entire country. So if you live in Des Moines, Iowa, you may never have, you, you may think that you're never going to get on a, a ship that's going to Europe, so you're safe from that. But if the Zimmerman telegram means that part of the United States is going to get carved up and there will be a German, Mexican, Japanese presence in North America, that's something quite different. Yeah, I think that the Japanese part in the Zimmerman telegram is often also neglected, even though it also is some foreshadowing for World War II, if you, if you want to see it like that. Yeah, it's also reflecting the tremendous anti-Asian racism that is existing in the United States, especially on the West Coast. So, you know, what the Zimmerman telegram did is not just... Um, um, anger people in the East, it angered people in the Southwest, it angered people out West, it angered people throughout the United States. Oh, very, very interesting way to look at it. Um, so, and is this uh, a topic that you will continue working on uh, now during the centennial or even after it? I think what I'm going to work on now, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, I'm back going to, tomorrow I'm going up to um, Yale University to start looking at some of the archives on this, but I'm interested in the ways that The United States started to conceive what a post-war world ought to look like. Um, so President Wilson in September of 1917 uh, formed a group of academics together in a group called the Inquiry. It became the first real think tank. It became what, what is now the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. Um, and I'm interested in what this group of people thought the world ought to look like when the war was over and what they thought the United States could or should do to make it look that way. Um, so I want to look at them and I want to look at the senior American military advisors whose views on the post-war period are in fact much more pacifist. They are pacifist, maybe the wrong word, but it is the senior generals who are telling Wilson and the members of the inquiry that American military power will in fact not be so strong that the United States can start getting involved in places like the Shandong Peninsula in China or Syria or Armenia, that these are places that the United States military really cannot effectively operate. So I'm interested in these kind of conflicting visions of what the post-World War I world uh, was going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the post-war or po let's say post-armistice uh, world is, you know, I mean, the, even though the fighting m might have been over in, well, on the Western Front, you know, it's, you can say that that's also where it got really, really interesting again. Um, and it's also such a neglected um, uh, part of the history. I mean, uh, we I think there is now one new book coming out uh, about Germany in 1918, 1919. Um, I mean, even we in Germany just learned a very quick summary that, you know, something, someone stood on a balcony and proclaimed the republic and there was a bit of street fighting. But, for example, uh, talking to um, English-speaking scholars it was the first time when I... Um, Uh, when they openly used the word civil war. And I was, at first, I was like, we had a, a civil war in Germany and never really understood it that way. But when you look into it a bit, 
it's quite obvious that it actually really was that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the real disillusionment in the United States comes not from the war. It comes from the failure of this peace process. And, and Wilson had set, maybe some of this was inevitable, Wilson had set such lofty expectations about what the peace process was going to do. And then, of course, it ends up not doing hardly any of that. Um, so I'm interested in this. I'm interested in the ways that Americans were thinking, what should the post-war world look like? And then, of course, the post-war world that actually gets created. Um, there's a new book by Robert Gowartha, an historian in Dublin called The Vanquished, which he looks at this process in Eastern and Central Europe and, and how, in his view, the, what happens with the First World War is not so much the First World War creates a generation of um, uh, dislocated, disrupted people, but that the, 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 the disappearance of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire and the German Empire means that all of these little local conflicts now have nothing to keep them constrained. Um, so I, I'm interested, I suppose this is because the centennial maybe is coming to a close, or maybe it's because I'm interested in these larger questions, but I'm interested in the ways that the First World War creates a new world and what America's relationship to that world become. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, um, thanks a lot, Michael, for talking with us. Um, I already recommend it to everyone here, and I will also recommend it to everybody I meet uh, who wants to read about World War One, the military atlas about World War One, which is a very awesome and easy to understand introductory source uh, for the war. Are there any other World War One related uh, works people should look out for that you wrote or published? The most recent book that I, uh, last fall, a book called Path to War, which is about America's relationship to the First World War from 1914 to 1917. Um, so if I can plug another book, it would be that one, uh, Path to War by Oxford University Press. Awesome. Um, that, of course, directly relates to what we were just talking about. And I think, um, you know, since the majority of our fans are actually from the US, they will find this one particularly interesting. Um, well, thanks a lot, Michael, again, for talking with us. And... Uh, Yeah, I wish you all the best in uh, get, forming these ideas you just talked about into any kind of um, readable content. <laughs> Thanks very much. My pleasure. <laughs>